Dotnet Rocks episode 660 with guests Susie Levine, Craig Treasure, Daniel Salazar, and David Hayden. Recorded live Friday, April 29th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Uh, Richard is climbing a mountain in Nepal, so I'm flying alone today. Talking with uh, Microsoft and the winners of the 2011 Imagine Cup. First up is Susie Levine. Susie is currently working as a director in Microsoft's education team. She's a mom, community organizer, and former Expedia executive. After leaving Brown University with degrees in English and mechanical and aerospace engineering, she worked in marketing at Microsoft, helping launch the final version of DOS. That's MS-DOS, folks. Also, Windows for Workgroups 311, Windows 95, and then Windows 98, and then... Expedia, eventually becoming Vice President of Sales and Marketing in Expedia's Luxury Travel Division. Her professional passion has always been to help people understand and use technology to improve their lives. And now she's involved in the Imagine Cup. Welcome, Susie. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Tell us about the Imagine Cup. Give us the overview. Well, the Imagine Cup is the world's premier student technology competition. And what we have students do is use technology to quite literally solve the world's toughest problems. Mm. Last year, we had over 325,000 students who registered for the Imagine Cup. And that was worldwide. That represented over 100 countries from which they were competing. Mm. Wow. And did these uh, students compete by registering online, or did they have to... Uh, go somewhere in person in order to qualify? Would they have to be hand-vetted, in other words? Right. Well, the answer to your question is yes, uh, in a couple of different ways. One is, yes, they registered online. In some cases, there was offline registration where we sort of batch-uploaded stuff, but Mm -hmm. mostly it's online registration. But then there's actually a number of different categories in which students can compete. Okay. They're like the Olympics. There are nine different categories. There's software design, embedded development, game Mm -hmm. design, Mm -hmm. Windows Phone 7, uh, there's Windows 7 Touch, there is uh, IT Challenge, which I call Help Desk on Steroids. It's an incredible competition. There's Mm -hmm. Digital Media, there's Orchard, which is Web Parts, and and then there's Interoperability. So there's a number of ways in which students can compete. And of those nine categories, one of those, software design, is done regionally. So we will have over 70 regional competitions. Wow. From the Ukraine to the United States, from New Zealand to Nigeria, um, all over the world. And then those winners from each of those regional competitions will come to compete at the Worldwide Finals, and they will be joined by the Worldwide Finalists selected from a virtual basis for those other eight categories. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Now, the people that we're speaking to today, um, where are they in the whole process? So you are going to be speaking with the United States winners. So we have regional winners from the United States Mm -hmm. um, who won the software design competition. And then um, 
those folks will be going to the worldwide finals. In the U.S., we had a game design competition in the U.S. where we have game design winners, but they do not necessarily qualify for the worldwide finals. We will not know the worldwide winners for the U.S., uh, the worldwide USA sort of team USA representatives mm-hmm. until the end of May. Uh, along those same lines, we will not know the embedded development team USA members until the end of May. And how many categories did you say there were? Nine total categories. All right, so there's nine, and there's seventy regional competitions. Yes. Yes. Okay, doing some quick math that adds up to a heck of a lot. So when uh, seventy different nine times 70 different people come or, 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 or competitors come to the worldwide finals. That's a lot of technology to sift over and judge. Do you see, do people actually one person actually look at all of those things or do you have one judge per category or. It's quite an operation where what we'll eventually have is there will be 123 finalists teams, and sometimes those teams are comprised of one, sometimes those teams are comprised of up to four members, Mm. we'll have about 123 finalist teams coming to New York this year. Mm. Last year it was in Warsaw, and next year we'll see where it's going to be. And we have many judges within that because there's multiple rounds of the competition. Like I said, eight of those nine categories are being judged right now. Wow. People have already submitted their projects, and you can actually see the leaderboard up on ImagineCup.com under competitions to see who is in the running for becoming those worldwide finalists at the end of May. Wow. So we have a lot from the U.S. who have made it into this final virtual round, and then we will know who is comprising, what again, I mentioned Team USA, by the end of May, and we'll also know who else from around the world will be going to the worldwide finals, the, what we think of as kind of the Olympics and the world championship of technology. So 2011 is already closed, it looks like. The entries for all but interoperability are closed. So if people have solutions that really cross the technology spectrum, then I would encourage them to still consider submitting for interoperability. And frankly, when you look at the quality of the projects, many of them are happening over multiple years. Hmm. So it's never too early to start considering your entry for the following year. I'll give you a couple of examples of this year's competitors whose projects have actually been in the works for quite some time. You have Team Notetaker, who won this year's U.S. Finals, and they actually won last year's accessibility competition on a worldwide basis with a previous rendition of their project, and they've been working on honing it. Ah. And so it's that honed version that won the U.S. finals, and I'm sure that they're continuing to work on it heading into the worldwide finals. Um, Team LifeLens came in second in the U.S., and they're also still in the running for the Windows Phone 7 competition. Mm -hmm. And their project is not the same as their project last year, but it has a lot in common with it. And last year, some of those members were in in Team Mobile Life that won the U.S. Finals. And so, again, they've been able to take their knowledge year over year and build out their ideas from that. Um, We're seeing that in other countries as well, where we have returning competitors 
who have either taken previous ideas or previous concepts and are building on them. Now, I imagine a lot of our audience is saying, well, my kid's into technology. Maybe we could do something here. What's the, uh, what are the requirements, age limits, and all that kind of thing? It is 16 and up. You have to be a student. Yeah. And then otherwise, really the only requirement is that you be creative, innovative, and passionate about impact on the world. Hmm. One of the things that we see is students of all different backgrounds. One of the final finalists this past, this past year was a social anthropologist out of Harvard, hmm. and her brother was an eco- economics major, and then they were able to hook up with a couple of technical specialists, one who's a specialist in mobile, and then another who is a specialist in database development, and they put together their team. So it's actually a lot more like the real world, where you might have somebody who really understands communications and writing. You might have somebody who's into design. You might have somebody who's into development. And together, you have the perfect team. Um, On that team life lens that I mentioned, we have somebody who is a pathologist. We have two Hmm. business majors, and we have somebody who's very focused on CS. So I would encourage people to think about what is their passion and how can it be applied to changing the world, and then find out are there other people with a similar passion and complementary skills to bring together in a team. Um, When we think about what students gain from participating in the Imagine Cup and how every, every student and every team are winners by the end of the process, it's because of the skills that they've gained that equip them for the world of tomorrow rather than just, gosh, how many points am I, how many points am I racking up? Right. Um, This theme for 2011, imagine a world where technology helps solve the toughest problems. Do you see that theme carrying through to next year? We do. And we actually have had that theme in place for some time. And what we encourage students to do is to use things like the UN Millennium Development Goals for their inspiration. Now, what are the Millennium Development Goals? The Millennium Development Goals span things like maternal health and universal education and basically encourage people to think very big around what they can solve across the globe. Mm. What we also see is a lot of students use very geographically relevant issues that they want to solve Mm -hmm. or very personal issues that they want to solve. Mm. This year, for example, we're seeing a lot around disaster relief. Yeah. And we're also seeing a lot that pertains geographically. So, for example the team that won Imagine Cup Iraq and is going to be coming to New York created a refugee health tracking solution. Wow. Now, how old were these kids in Iraq? I am not sure of their exact ages, but they're in university. So yeah. they're probably somewhere between 17 and 22. Yeah. And, uh, and amazing courage and amazing solution that they've put together. Now, if you're in your master's or PhD program, can you still participate? I mean, that kind of doesn't really even the playing field, does it? We Yes, you can. It, again, it's students. And so yeah. we do have people who are in their PhD programs and master's programs who are participating. Okay. And believe it or not, there are definitely teams, even of high schoolers, who have competed well against them. Wow. So, for example, in this year's U.S. Game Finals, we had a team of high schoolers from San Francisco Team Zaz who made it into the Final Four. And that was in competition against students who were um, who were very senior in their university careers or even in master's programs for design. So mm. 
we absolutely do see um, competitors in high school. It's not so frequent, but it's yeah. becoming more and more prevalent. Last year's Japanese finalists, for example, also were from high school. So it's possible, and they are incredible students. Really, it is... When, let me let me back up a little bit, sure. too, because it's not just how hardcore is the technology. And that's part of what I believe is the magic of the Imagine Cup. Mm. It is a combination of the quality of the product that you are creating, how well you communicate it, right. and then how well does it adhere to the theme of solving the world's toughest problems. Right. So does it really the solve impact? the problems, or is it just cool stuff? Yeah. It's not just cool stuff. It is Innovation definitely is a contributing factor to the judging. And on the ImagineCup.com website, students can see the weighting of the different judging categories, and they can get a better sense of how important various elements are. But it really does boil down to those three areas of project quality, communicating their idea and business plan, and what is the impact of what they're creating. Susie, how long have you been involved in the Imagine Cup? I've been involved in the Imagine Cup for about three years now. What is the coolest project you've ever seen come out of the Imagine Cup? Your favorite. That's kind of like choosing, you know, asking me mm. to choose which child I love more. Okay, pick uh, one. I will, I, what I will say is I really, I, I do love all of the projects that the students create. And I will tell you that the impact that they have really is hard to, there isn't an even correlation because sometimes you might have a project coming out of an area that is much uh, much less developed in their technology prowess that's going to have greater impact mm. than someplace that's far more developed yeah. and where technology is extremely prevalent. So I want to just caveat my answer that way. Okay, fair enough. So that said, some of the projects that I have really... Um, connected with are ones that uh, last year out of Jordan, there was a team that created a solution to detect desertification. And what I loved about it was first they identified the disparity in socioeconomic status between those who are in desert areas versus those who are in fertile areas. Mm. And so they first stated their case of why what they were creating was important. And then they created a combination of sensors combined with uh, data that they were gathering uh, from a meteorological and topographical standpoint to then blend together and predict where was there going to be the growth of deserts. Wow. They then were able to work with the Kingdom of Jordan to actually put it into use and get it tested. So wow. that's one example. That's huge. Uh, it is huge. And another example is in New Zealand, there's a team last year, Team One Beep who recognizing that there's a short-term problem where you have a lot of laptops such as OLPCs and netbooks that are being deployed in areas without internet connectivity. So you have the devices, but you don't have refreshed content. Ah. And they recognize that that's a short-term problem, right? In five or ten years, that's going to be resolved, even in areas like Sub-Saharan Africa and in the South Pacific Islands. But in the short term, how do you address it? Well, what is per- what is pervasive? Ah, radio and television. Mm. So what they created was a way to transmit files of all types out through the airwaves to those devices. You know, I did hear about that. That made the news. That was huge. Yeah, it is huge. And what I love about those two projects and what I love about projects overall from past years 
is that this isn't just about how do you create intellectual property as a student, but also how do you then take your idea to the next level? Mm. And this connects you with VCs through our BizSpark program and through connections that people are making as a result of winning this competition or even just competing in being able to be pushed to formulate their ideas, not just as technology solutions, but as world solutions. And so these students have demonstrated how do you go to that next level turning your skills into impact. Susie Levine, thank you very much for spending a few minutes with us introducing this show on the Imagine Cup. And uh, imaginecup.com is the website. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carl. And good luck. And I encourage all students to consider how they can be a part of not just the competition, but the conversation. Excellent. And stick around. We'll be right back to talk to some of the winners. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at telerik.com slash justcode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. The Software Design People's Choice Award first place went to Team Bearpaw, and Craig Treasure is joining us from Bearpaw. Craig is an information technology major who recently graduated from Brigham Young University. Uh, his team created a mobile solution that converts ultrasound image files to an open standard format and then relies on the cloud for further processing and storage, which enables ultrasounds to be more portable, affordable, and easier to use. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you. And congratulations to you and your team. Thank you very much. So uh, we're talking about ultrasounds when you go to, when you're having a baby and the, you, you, the doctor uh, gives you an ultrasound, you can see sort of, you know, the, the, the baby inside. Is that what we're talking about, ultrasounds here? Yes. Yep, that's it. Okay. So tell us about, uh, tell us a little bit more about bear paw and why bear paw, by the way? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, one of our team members actually grew up in Alaska and I guess that's a, a celebration that they have um, in his hometown. That's where Bear Paw came from. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> uh, we're kind of a unique group. We're all information technology majors at, at BYU. Um, so just the four of us, um, we kind of got together in a, in a capstone uh, class. And there's a project we were working on, and we just decided to enter it into Imagine Cup. You said a capstone class? Uh-huh. What's that? Capstone class is kind of your finishing, it's kind of like your senior project, your senior year of, okay. of, uh, of college. So. All right. So, and you uh, you guys, who who came up with the idea for the ultrasound, the portable ultrasound uh, technology? Uh, that's our, our mentor, actually. His research is based on medical imaging, storage, and processing, that kind of stuff. And so we just kind of took ultrasound as a really 
common technology here in the States and something that could be uh, very useful worldwide that's not available worldwide um, but could have a, a great impact on those people that don't have access to it. It always seems to me that the, the issue surrounding medical technology isn't so much that the technology isn't there or available to use, but, um, you know, legal problems and uh, just the hospital's unwillingness to embrace it because they, they're afraid of it because, you know, after all, lives and lawsuits are on the line. How, uh, how did you did you have any support from hospitals or insurance companies or, or any kind of thing? Do you, is anybody interested in this kind of in, in using BearPaw in the real world? Um, yeah, there are people interested. Um, the stage we're at with it right now is still very much, you know, we've, we've proved the concept that it, that it will work. Um, now, now we'd be moving into the stages of, of actually uh, signing people up for it. Right. Um, we do have the company who actually uh, lent us the USB ultrasound device. Has been looking into licensing the software that we wrote, and wow. they were, we would provide the cloud portion of it to hospitals. So it's, I mean, that, that's all of the next kind of stages of, of what's going on in the project. The open standard format that you convert your ultrasound image files to, what format is that? It's the DICOM image format. Okay, never heard of it, but I guess it's a high resolution, <laughs> a high resolution vector uh, or, or a raster uh, format. Uh, it, it can actually, DICOM is more of a container than it is anything. So you can store a JPEG or a PNG or whatever kind of image inside of the, the file that you want. DICOM really just takes the image and the metadata and combines them together. Oh, nice. Oh, that's cool. So it does. it's both raster and vector? Essentially, it'll handle both? I think it's mostly raster. I'm not sure on the vector graphic. Neat. Interesting. And so um, the cloud portion, or is this an Azure implementation? Uh-huh. Okay. Very cool. And what about security? I imagine, you know, most hospitals are going to be interested in Keeping medical records secure and associated with other medical records, how how is that handled? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and that's kind of an ongoing battle um, for our project. The most security that we did was the secure transport from our you know our tablet device to the cloud. We have that all secured, mm. um, and then we also password protected the cloud interface as well. But there's there's a lot of work still to be done, you know, to make sure that certain doctors can only see their patients and that it's all secure on the granular layer as well. So there's there's still a lot of work to be done on the cloud end of, of everything. Yeah. For now, um, uh, is is the data encrypted as it's sent or in transit? Yes, it's encrypted in transit. Well, that's good, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do, do, so that's an ongoing concern, I bet. Absolutely. Um, and that's something that we've, we're obviously aware of. Um, those are concerns that need to be overcome before this could really become a, a large-scale thing. Um, but in its current form, it would be very useful to, you know, outside countries, developing countries, things like that. So let's talk technology now. You're, uh, it's a, a mobile solution, so does this work... Um, with the with a a PC that's connected to this USB device or a laptop or or even a phone, how does it work? Right. Um, right now we're using laptops and, and tablet PCs. Um, anything with a USB port, really. Mm -hmm. um, the 
that's running Windows currently. We'd like to do it on mobile phones. We don't have access to the mm-hmm. USB port on those devices yet, but I, it would be completely possible to do if we could get access to that port. Yeah, sure. And uh, you're talking WCF to Azure? Are you using Azure, SQL Azure? Uh-huh, SQL Azure. Okay, very cool. Um, how are you storing those? Are you, are you storing those blobs in the database, or are they just files that are, are linked in the database? They are blobs in the database. They are blobs. Okay, how about how big is a typical ultrasound, K-wise? Um, our uncompressed images are around 400K. Uh, that's not bad. No, that's not bad at all. Not bad at all. That's uncompressed. Like I said, we can we can use JPEG compression if we we seem to flip a switch to turn that on, and they would be quite a bit smaller. So. Yeah. Any any loss with the JPEG or concern about loss? Uh, of course, there's going to be a little bit of loss, but not not too much. I don't think. Because don't people like to zoom in pretty far with uh, you know, with uh, ultrasounds? You know, see all the little details of their babies. Yeah, and of course, this all, this all depends on the resolution of the device that you're using. Yeah. Um, the one that we used, actually, has not got the the most resolution, but it's enough to where doctors could see what they need to see. So it really comes back to the device and resolution you're getting out of it. Can you tell me quickly, I don't know if you want to answer this question or you can, but um, <laughs> what other projects were you competing with that, uh, that, uh, that you beat out? Um. Well, we didn't really beat anybody out for the people's choice. I mean, it was it was a lot more fun because I think we just had a really interesting project. Okay, were there other nominated projects? Um, everybody was technically nominated, I guess. I but, see. You know, there were some people that followed up pretty closely, but oh, I see. Very good. Well, you must be very proud of yourself and in, in your team. <laughs> yeah, we're we're pretty happy with the project and what what came out of it. Craig, what part of uh, what part or parts of the project did you yourself work on? Um, I worked mostly on the application side, as far as storing preferences and patient data, and network data. I also worked on the uh, the secure transportation of the file, as well as the the HTML, the web interface of the cloud. Um, those were those were kind of my specialty. We all kind of had our own little feature that we owned, which was kind of a lot of fun. So we all have our, you know, our <laughs> our sections of the of the the project that we own. Yeah. Did you use HTTPS for encryption, or did you have to uh, roll your own kind of uh, uh, security? And what what algorithms did you use? Um, for as far as transferring the DICOM file, there is in the DICOM standard a you know a standard for actually transporting those files. We weren't able to use this, you know, the typical HTTPS to upload those files. We had to use that different um, TLS connection. Okay. As far as using certificates and things like that, it's not, not, you know, it's not uncommon, but it's not your typical HTTPS connection. Well, that's cool that the the DICOM um, spec has encryption built right in. Did you have yeah. a, a tool to do that, or did you have to write that yourself? Um, we used a tool for a lot of it. We had to write some of it. Um, we used a, a DICOM library called MDCM uh, to do most of our, our DICOM, you know, things. But uh, the the secure portion of that is not quite finished, and so we we did some of it <laughs> enough of it to actually transport securely. So. Well, Craig Treasure, thank you very much for for sharing that with us, and congratulations again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. 
And next up is Daniel Salazar. He's the team leader of Team Big Impact Bear and a graduating senior of University of Houston with a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. So tell me about uh, Big Impact Bear. Uh, well, the, the team was actually formed in a game design class uh, at the University of Houston. Okay. Yeah, we formed our team and... Uh, part of the assignments for the class were to build a game based off of the UN Millennium Goals. Right. And so what is your what does your game do to change the world? And is this Forest Gun is the name of the game? Correct, Forest Gun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um well our game was designed at a just raising education in a fun way about the uh problem of deforestation. Okay. And uh we do this through several different ways. We make it um we make it fun by proactively regrowing the forest. So, like, in, mm. within the game, you can actually plant trees and regrow and, you know, watch the forest grow. And uh, a lot of our education factor comes in through our achievement system. So, like, as you plant more trees, as you do more things and level, these achievements pop up and, they, you know, they say, you know, facts about, you know, what's going on in the world today with deforestation as well as, you know, the actual game uh, accomplishments. Now, like, you know, when, planting when, some mud trees and things like that. Now, when you say with the game you plant trees, are you in the game planting trees or in reality planting trees? Uh, within the game, you um, your your character, who is actually a, a a transformed human, who is transformed into like a a tree guy, a tree uh, human kind of a tree human, yes, okay. humanoid tree. All right. Uh, he he will run around the forest and he he collects seeds. And he can actually replant uh, fallen trees, uh, I guess, uh, depicted as stumps within the game. He can replant those trees, uh, mm-hmm. you know, within a few seconds. Okay. So is the object of the game to raise awareness about deforestation? Uh, yeah, it's just to, you know, just to, to increase, you know, awareness and education. I mean, it's, I mean, this is a game. It's it's not going to, uh, right. you know, physically do any planting. But, you know, if we can get the message out, get more people hearing you know, just how severe the problem is. I see. You know, we're hoping we can uh, change a few minds. And can you get a really good idea of how severe the problem actually is from playing the game? Uh, you can start to, yeah. Um, like I said, a lot of our a lot of our facts within the game are based on you know real world facts. So this is how we introduce the real world into the game. I see. Well, that's very cool. So, what technologies did you use here? Um, the game was built uh, entirely on XNA. Okay. Or the Windows Phone. So, is there a Xbox version also? Uh, no Xbox, but there is a PC version. Oh, that's interesting. And why no Xbox version? Isn't it just as simple as a deployment? Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as you know, deploying for one thing or the other, it was pretty simple. Any way you did it, um, yeah. XNA allows for Windows Phone, PC, and Xbox. You know, uh, fairly easily to switch between the the three. Um, we just chose PC um, as the uh, the other track for XNA was PC and Xbox, so we just chose to go with PC. Oh, I see. So it's not that it couldn't be done; it's just a choice. So is Correct. this uh, is is this a free game that we can download and play? Um, currently, no. It's not with uh, it's not inside the um, the marketplace for Windows Phone. Okay. Um, we don't see it as complete yet. I mean, we we have a couple of of levels going. But the game itself, we want before we 
before we push it to the marketplace, we want to have a more complete game. And how many people on the team? Uh, currently three of us. All right. How uh, long did it? How long did it take? Um, this game has been going for two semesters. So it started at the beginning of of last August. Wow. Which one of you does the artwork? Um, that'd be uh, mostly Francisco. Okay. Uh, Francisco Jimenez, and then uh, Brett Langshin did a lot of the programming. Okay. Very cool. Did a lot of the, the base code. So three three guys, couple semesters. I I take it you're working in your off time. You're not doing this full time. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Though we do dedicate a lot of time to building this. Oh, that's great. So what was the biggest challenge for you? Um, getting started, it was just uh, getting familiar with XNA. Um, but, you know, once everything was going, the biggest challenge was was actually just getting the game to play smoothly. Um, you know, we wanted, you know, the jumps to be smooth. We wanted the characters to be you know, the movements to be fluid, and this was the hardest part instead of having, like, you know, halting steps and things like that. Yeah. Oh, great. Had you guys, had any of you guys ever built games before? Uh, no. <laughs> really? Yeah, this is the first game any of us have built. Wow, that's very cool. But it was in a game design class that it was born? Correct, yes. And this Neat. was, uh, yeah, the yeah, first game design that we've taken as well. Well, that's got to feel pretty good. I mean, you take a game design class and then you end up winning the Imagine Cup for it. Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a good feeling. Yeah, I'll say. When did you uh, When did you find out that you won? That we won. Well, yeah. I mean, the the Your that local. final day of uh, the announcements during the Imagine Cup. Uh, yeah, uh, must time spot there yeah. must have been awesome. So you think you got a shot of? Uh, so so you're going to the to the final finals in New York, right? The World Finals here. Um, not sure yet. We don't find out that one until late May. Right. So we are, we are in the, the top 50. So we, we have submitted, uh, for the next round. So crossing our fingers, we'll see. So what advice do you have to kids, uh, high school kids in particular who are thinking about, uh, you know, about computer science or maybe, or game programming or, you know, thinking, oh, I couldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. What do you say to them? Um, it's as hard as you think it is, but it's a lot of fun. I see. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great, Daniel. Thanks very much for talking to us. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. And we'll be right back. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActorReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActorReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. And next up is David Hayden. He's the inventor and team captain of Team Notetaker. He's uh, graduating this year at Arizona State University majoring in computer science and math, dual major. He's going on to MIT for a PhD in computer science. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, Note taker, tell us about this. 
So what we're trying to do is help low vision students take notes in class. And the basic problem that they face is that to view the board, they need optical magnification. Mm. And they get this magnification through assistive technologies, even ones that already exist. But the basic problem that, 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 the, that they face with that is that you've got this great big board. And once you zoom in 10 or 12x optical magnification, you're going to have a very limited field of view. So the low vision student spends a lot of time looking at his notes, going back to the board, finding the spot they were last looking at. Uh, committing something in memory, going back down, writing his notes. And so there's this cycling, this board note, board delay that uh, will will accumulate in a fast-paced classroom to the point where low-vision students can't keep up in note-taking. And so uh, this was a problem I was facing in 2007, being a legally blind student. And hmm. I, uh, I found that the existing assistive technologies either suffered from this board note, board delay problem, or they required um, installations in the classroom or reliance on support personnel that, uh, you know, you can't always assume to be available at every university or and business beyond. So we, uh, we took a tablet PC, put it flat on the desk, and connected a custom-designed pan-tilt-zoom camera. So this is uh, an industrial camera. Underneath it are two servo motors that allow it to be uh, uh, panned and tilted so it can be pointed in any particular direction programmatically. Hmm. And then on the tablet PC, uh, we have a split screen interface where in the bottom half of the screen you have a digital notepad where you can take handwritten and typed notes, and this is through uh, Microsoft OneNote. Okay. And then on the top half of the screen, or the left half, depending on your portrait or, or landscape orientation, you'll have live video of the, uh, of the board. And we can uh, use 36x optical zoom and uh, um, Huh. We can do some image enhancement. We can go back in time. So if the professor gets in the way, you can do a simple gesture-based control where you can uh, kind of swipe to the uh, to the right, and as you're swiping to the right, you'll see uh, an image from, say, half a second come into view, and you can do it again and see another half second behind. So if a professor gets in the way of you taking notes, you can go back just a little bit before he got in the way. Well, well hang on a second. This um, Can you go over that process again? Because that seemed pretty complex, and I didn't quite grok it, um, you know, if uh, the whole idea of getting behind a little bit and being able to adjust the time. Sure. Uh, so we're, we're taking video from a camera, and right. every half second, uh, we're caching a frame from that video. And right. so uh, sometimes the professor will get in the way, and a fully sighted student would be able to kind of shift in his seat to change his view, right. uh, his vantage point. And a camera is kind of in a fixed position sitting yeah. on the student's desk, so... Uh, rather than move the camera around, the student can just go back, you know, half a second, one second, one and a half seconds in time to when the professor wasn't in the way. So then he can continue writing his notes, and then once he's uh, ready, go back to the live view. Oh, I see. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, um, it, it sort of begs the question, wouldn't it be great if all professors had video of their classes that you could just take home? You know, instead of Absolutely, leaving it up to every I, I student. Agree. And, and some classes are installed with lecture recording systems, you know, cameras for archiving these lectures, like MIT OpenCourseWare was one of the big programs that started that. But yeah. um, in the meantime, you know, we, we were trying to equip students with a portable assistive technology that they can take with them and yeah. make any particular classroom accessible according to their needs. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's what you have to do when you're in a classroom where there's no where there's no video, and I'm sure that comprises most classes. That's correct, yeah. This is pretty ingenious. Um, and how did it work the first uh, the first time you took it for a test run? 
Well, we, we've gone through three generations of prototypes, and the first wow. time that we tested it, I tested it in class. It was, I was in a abstract algebra, so a group theory class, and, mm. uh, you know, we, it was a little clamp that, uh, that you could, that was purchased from Walmart, yeah. and, uh, on top of that clamp was a, is a very low cost, uh, consumer oriented pan tilt, uh, mechanism, and then on top of that was a, a little DV camcorder. This is the standard, you know, handy cams that people run around with, and there's tons of wires, and it looked very ugly, but I was uh, shocked at how effortlessly I was taking notes in class. Yeah. Um, and and over time, I mean, that was the first day, and I, I left kind of feeling a little light, uh, feeling <laughs> a little light because, you know, it was just yeah. it was easy to take notes, and that was the first for me. Um, as we moved forward, we, of course, identified problems in that first generation, and we had another low vision student using it for a month, and then, so we've, we've built successive generations until we got to our third generation, where we've had, you know, half a dozen low vision students testing the second generation in between, and we've identified several dozen other low vision students in, in the university now. And our third generation is um, all industrial parts, and uh, it's printed with stereolithography, so the shell is, is used uh, printed by 3D printers, and then we have all wow. the industrial parts inside. Wow, that's insane, <laughs> in a good way. Do you think there's an application for non-low-vision students? I mean, just being able to see the board and your notes in one screen is, uh, I think, really goes a long way towards alleviating that distraction that you were talking about, even if you do have good eyesight. Sure. So um, there's 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 kind of two uh, there's two kind of markets. I guess there's the the assistive technology market, which would be for low vision. Mm. And there's also an interesting variation. For instance, for deaf students, they have a similar problem where they they have fine their eyesight's fine, but they have an interpreter sitting in the room, and so mm. they have to focus. They have to just keep switching their focus between notes, board, professor, mm. and. Uh, interpreter, yeah, sign language interpreter, and so if you had a two camera system, you could also solve that. But the assistive technology markets are quite small, which forces any assistive technology solution to be very expensive. Yeah, and so it is our hope to target uh, fully sighted students and and make a system that's useful to them. And part of the way that we're doing that is. Uh, well, we know what time on a tablet PC, we know what time uh, all the audio and video is being recorded in the class. And similarly, we know what time each keystroke or pin stroke when your handwriting is, is being taken. Mm. And so when you're going back to review, you can actually look through your notes, uh, your handwritten or typed notes, and find maybe you weren't taking enough notes in an area. Um, you can select those notes, <laughs> and then it'll start playing the audio and video that were being recorded when you were taking those notes. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Um, I think fully sighted students would, would really appreciate that kind of review facility. Oh, yeah. And uh, once, and I think that they wouldn't be willing to pay for the peripheral that, that we need for low vision students, because low vision students need a lot of, of magnification. Yeah. But I think as the uh, webcams continue to get progressively higher quality, then we could bring this software to and, and seriously target a non-disabled student market. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can think of several tablet-like devices on the market that this would work for. Um, you know, not just the tablet PC, although we are talking the Magic Cup here, so we're sticking with Microsoft Well, the thing with the, I mean, I, I agree, like, you know, the iPads and the Android tablets, they're all very thin and, and tend to have much better battery life than tablet mm. PCs right now. But the one shortcoming that they have is that they don't have pin input. So mm. tablet PCs have uh, a layer behind the screen that is actively digitizing uh, input from a pin, usually a Wacom pin. Yeah. Um, more recently, there's Intrig as another uh, competitor of Wacom. But the important thing is, is that on these tablet PCs, 
the pin input is sub-pixel accurate, and it's several times the resolution of the display, and you need that for high-quality inking for things like equations and diagrams. Um, yeah. On, on a, a, a more modern tablet like the iPads or the Android tablets, you just have a capacitive touchscreen, which has only the resolution of the display, which isn't enough for uh, handwriting equations. Yeah, I, I totally say. agree. I've always been wowed by the tablet PC. I have one, and I got one when they first came out. And uh, the, I was just in awe of the intelligence behind the uh, handwriting uh, recognition. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, Microsoft is best in class on handwriting recognition right now. Yeah. It is very impressive. That's fantastic. So the archiving aspect of this is also really interesting that you were talking about. Um, would it, is it because your notes are digitized, are they also optically character recognized and translated to regular text? You can do that. Uh, I mean, so, so we have a plugin inside OneNote, which allows us to, to, you know, uh, not have to reinvent an already almost perfectly round wheel. And, uh, so OneNote has that facility. Uh, the problem is, is that, uh, if you're in a math class, any STEM class, science, technology, engineering, and math, um, you're not going to get good results for, for, um, you know, any sort of inline mathematics. Um, but if you're in humanities classes and taking handwritten notes and not using specialized notation, it'll actually work uh, remarkably well. Wow, that's great. So, what do you? What is your? Uh, do you? You must have a goal in life in terms of you know the ultimate software project or computer project that you want to create. That might be seem a little bit uh, outlandish. You seem like a guy who's got. Uh, a lot of ambition in that in that way. Tell me about some of the things that you want to do, maybe when you get to MIT or beyond. Sure, uh, I'm interested in, in equipping technology that uh, equipping people with technology that augments their perception, augments their perception of the environment and the way they interact with it. So, I'm very interested in putting computers on the body or in the body once the technology is there, but prosthetics aren't. Um, but putting computers on the body that allow us to uh, perceive our environment more more capably than we already can. And, and I'm not just talking about uh, resolving uh, disabilities or lack of ability, but yeah. actually taking the normal human ability in something, say, hearing or sight, and bringing it to something, you know, superhuman. Having the, 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 the glasses or whatever where there's overlaid information about your environment, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, yeah, so, the, yeah, certainly augmented reality is a yeah. part of that. And in fact, Brother International, the, the printer company of all people, um, just came out with the first uh, virtual retina display. Oh, geez. And uh, that's the, the, it's a pair of glasses, and there's a little scanning laser that paints an image directly on your retina, so it goes straight through your lens, and it's always in focus on on your retina. Oh um, man, is that safe? <laughs> I'm it sure is, it, is. it is. I'm sure it University is. University of Washington had been working with that technology since the '90s, so wow. I'm uh, looking forward to that that proliferating. And this is a uh, is this new on the market, or is this just newly invented from Brother? Uh, Brother announced it last November at a trade show in Japan, and it's they're only targeting industrial markets right now. So I haven't seen the product myself but um i'm i'm hoping that that is uh that it's it's going to get beyond the industrial markets and into the consumer markets which they they claim to be planning to do oh yeah i'm reading uh april 11th 2008 um just a quick bing search brother developed spectacle type wearable retinal imaging display yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's my understanding the most recent news from that was uh november of last year for them demoing at that trade show, but I think, of course, they've been developing it for some years. 
Well, listen, when you get to MIT and you get uh, your hands into some of this stuff, and it's really interesting, if you're uh, still interested in coming back on the show and talking about uh, what you've been doing, let us know. Great. Thank you. And that goes for all the Imagine Cup winners we've talked to today. And uh, also, if you're listening out there and you've done some really interesting things or had some interesting thoughts, please send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Keep in touch. And uh, David, thank you again. Thank you. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .net Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.